This is VLX number 144, as in the days of Noah. We are in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 51. God give you his peace, and nomine patri sefiti, et spiritu santi. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patri sefiti, et spiritu santi. Amen. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So today you probably see that we are in the last section of Matthew 24. Let's look at the remaining chapters in reverse order. Matthew 28 is the resurrection. Matthew 27 is the passion. Matthew 26 is the anointing at Bethany and the trial of Jesus, and then Matthew 25, the next chapter, that's going to be the parables on the particular and final judgments, which again is the very next chapter. And keep in mind, Matthew 25 takes place in Tuesday of Holy Week. But we are in the last section of Matthew 24 today. Now before we start, let's be clear that Catholics do not believe in the rapture. You're going to hear about the coming of the Son of Man, whereupon Jesus adds, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So we're going to see today that this is a reference to the general judgment or the final judgment that is on the last day on earth, not a period before the general judgment where, say, this new idea that bad people get another chance or there's a thousand-year military reign in Israel or something. What Christ means in that verse is that one woman will go to heaven and one will go to hell when one of them is caught ready and one is caught off guard during that last generation of people on earth when Christ returns. And we heard about what that was going to be like in the last couple VLXs. So if you remember those Left Behind movies with Kirk Cameron, that's the rapture where one good man is taken to heaven and the bad man is left on earth. The good woman is taken to heaven and the bad woman is left behind. 
for some period of time long before the general judgment. That's the rapture that Catholics do not believe in. It's a heretical idea. So when Jesus says in today's gospel, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left, he, ne- he never meant the rapture. Why not? Because not only is the rapture a made-up idea, it's extremely new in the whole calendar of Christianity. You know, Catholicism slash Christianity is 2,000 years old. The rapture only came onto the scene in 1830. That's extremely new, considering Catholicism is 2,000 years old. So the rapture, it's an idea made up by John Darby in 1830 that teaches that the true grouping of real Christians will be taken up into the air with Jesus for a period of time before the general judgment, but the bad will be left on earth for a period of time. The problem with that teaching, well, there's a, there's a dozen problems with the teaching, but the very clearest way you can disprove any friends that believe in it is just to show that no Catholic and no Eastern Orthodox and really no Protestant believed in the rapture until 1830. Now, if you want to hear how this weird, wacky idea of the rapture is tied to millennialism and dispensationalism and Zionism, listen to the Dr. Taylor Marshall podcast number 1036 from last year. Last year was 2023 called Should Christians Support Israel? Again, that's Taylor Marshall number 1036 should Christians support Israel? That will teach you why it's bogus to believe in the rapture and millennialism and dispensationalism and Zionism. And I will put that in the show notes. So again, today you're going to hear two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Again, this is a reference to the general judgment of the final judgment on the last day on earth. And it means, this is the true teaching, not the heretical teaching. The true teaching is it means One man will go to heaven and one to hell during that last generation of people on earth when Christ returns. In fact, presumably there's going to be, hopefully, several billion go to heaven and unfortunately several billion go to hell. But remember, those who believe in the rapture, they're simply using today's verses as proof texting. Proof texting is a fancy word for cherry picking. Darby came up with this idea of the rapture that Jesus takes the good and leaves the bad on earth. And many Protestant Zionists in the U.S. today will use the gospel we're going to be looking at today to support their very weird left-behind movies. And I believe this is tied to Israel forming a powerful military for Jesus to reign on earth long before the general judgment. Exegesis, that's what we want to do in Scripture. Exegesis is pulling out of the Scripture its intended meaning, which we get primarily from the fathers. Eisegesis, literally it means reading into, Eisegesis is reading into the text of the Bible what I want to see in it for my own personal agenda. But what this channel does, VLX, is patristic exegesis, meaning what did the fathers take from the Bible? Now, go back to the bad one. Modern eisegesis or scriptural cherry-picking is what most Christians, including unfortunately most Catholics, do today. Why do they do it? Because they want Jesus without the cross. But if you want Jesus with the cross, which is necessary for salvation, you do patristic exegesis. And that is simply believing what the fathers took out of the Bible, or rather, the meaning the fathers themselves were given by the apostles who were given by Christ himself. And what I'm giving you is the constant for 2,000 years Catholic belief, the belief from the very start. So when I say something, or rather when I assert something that I'm not sure of that's my own opinion, I will tell you it's my own opinion. Now, for newcomers, you're going to hear me say the word Father Lapide a lot. Uh, Father Cornelius Lapide, he was a holy Jesuit who died in 1637. 
After compiling what the early church fathers said or wrote about every single verse in the Gospels, and that's our main text for this series. So when you hear me say, Father Lapide writes, I know I say that a lot. I probably sound like the old jokes from the early movies, Confucius say. I do say Father Lapide a lot, but I'm almost saying, here's what the best friends of the apostles teach because they got it from Jesus Christ himself. And when I say that, I'm not claiming my authority, and I'm not really even claiming Father Lapide has a great authority, but basically, this is the authority of Jesus himself because we can be sure that what he gave to the apostles was the same of what the apostles gave to the fathers who wrote extensively, and that is what Father Lapide is quoting. So that's why it's authoritative when you hear me say Father Lapide. It's not authoritative because of me. It's not even authoritative because of Father Lapide. It's because it's patristic, and they got that from the apostles who got the teaching that I'm teaching on this series from Christ himself. Uh, So just keep in mind as you listen today that none of the fathers or the apostles believed in the rapture or dispensationalism or Zionism as you listen today. The Loretto Press translation of Lapide uses the Dewey Reims Bible, so we'll use that for the translation today. Verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knoweth, no, not the angels of heaven, but the Father alone. Now, before we talk about the big question there, how can we be asserting, or how can the Bible be asserting that Jesus himself doesn't know? We're going to see that's actually not the case, but it appears that way. We're going to look at really the date. And so Father Lapide gives five common opinions in the 17th century, five common opinions. Um, Again, no one knows the date or the hour, but we've just been looking in the VLX series at numerous signs that are going to be given towards the end of the world. So people were sort of allowed to guess, I don't know, centuries, around the century that it would happen, even if we don't know the day or the hour. And so we're not going to go into all five of these theories during Father Lapide's time. I'll just give you two. One of them, he writes, some think that there will be just as many years after Christ to the end of the world as there was from the creation to Christ. So 4,000 years from Adam to Christ, and then 4,000 years from Christ to the end of the world. So that would mean the general judgment, Jesus returning in glory, would happen around 4,000 AD. Um, But the one that Father Labide himself holds to, he says, many suppose that the world will come to an end after it has existed for 6,000 years, as it was created in six days, Genesis 1, according to the saying, or prophecy of Elias 6,000, that is the world. And in Latin, that's sex million mundus. And he says, this opinion is probably true, as I've shown at length at Apocalypse chapter 20, verse 4. That is his explanation of the book of Revelation. So that puts it at 2,000. It's interesting that Father Lapide, after studying all the church fathers, thought that Christ would return somewhere around the year 2,000. But then we have this mysterious line, but of that day and hour, no one knoweth, no, not the angels of heaven, but the Father alone. So does this mean Jesus didn't know? Well, no. There was a group of heretics in the first few centuries called the Agnote, that means those who did not know, and they believed Jesus didn't know his own return until after his resurrection. And you hear this heresy resuscitated nowadays in people who talk about Jesus becoming, or Jesus realizing his mission, or Jesus learning who he was, or something like that. And this really proves what Pope St. Pius X said, that modernism is a synthesis of all heresies. Every heresy is really just old. So anytime you hear someone saying Jesus came to know who he was or Jesus becoming the Messiah or something, that's just very much like these, uh, really the Arians who, who believed he wasn't God. But we still have to explain this. So there's actually two opinions among the Orthodox fathers, the good fathers of the, of the early church, 
And here's the difference of opinion. Basically, every church father understands Christ knew as God the day and the hour of his return. But there's some debate among the fathers whether he knew as man. So let's let's just get it um, definitive here that he definitely knew as God. And the funny thing is I saw I saw the thumbnail. I didn't actually click on it. There was a thumbnail for a YouTube video that had like 500,000 uh, views for this question. Did Jesus know the year of his return? And I didn't dare click on it because I figured it would probably not be patristic in its explanation. But the amazing thing is, like I said at the beginning of this video, we have the answer Jesus gave to the apostles who gave it to the fathers. Okay, so this line, the Father alone. This is what Father Lapide says as he um, sublimates this from all the church fathers. He says, Who from eternity had determined in his own mind and appointed this day which he keeps secret? Now by the word alone, the Son is not excluded, neither the Holy Ghost, for they know the day and the hour of the judgment equally with the Father, since they have all the same essence, majesty, will, power, mind, understanding, and knowledge. For the rule of the theologians is, if the word alone or only be added to any of the essential attributes of God, such as wisdom, and be ascribed to only one of the divine persons, it does not exclude the other two persons, but only creatures which are of a different nature and essence. But in personal attributes, the expression alone or only does exclude two of the divine persons, as when it is said, the Father alone begets, or only the Son is begotten. So when we say in the in the creed or the Trinitarian theology, the Father alone begets, then then we understand that specifically refers to the Father. But when we're talking about knowledge, we can never exclude anyone of the Blessed Trinity. So of course God the Son knows the day of his return. So Jesus as God knows his day of return. How about is man? Well, there's some division among the church fathers on that. Father Lapide writes, Various answers are given. The best is that which is common among the fathers. It is that the Son, both as God and as man, by infused knowledge knows the day of judgment and of the end of the world, for it pertains to him to know this, inasmuch as he has been appointed the judge of the world. But Christ denies that he knoweth this as man, and as he is God's messenger to us, because he did not know it in such a way as to be able to reveal it to us, or because he had not been commissioned by the Father to reveal it to us. Now, I'm not quite as convinced on that one, because Father Lapide says an ambassador who was questioned concerning the secrets of his prince would truly reply that he did not know them, even if he did know them, because he did not know them as an ambassador. That sounds a little bit tricky, so I'm not, I'm not quite as convinced on that one. Um, and apparently that's a teaching of St. John, or St. Jerome and St. Chrysostom. But uh, St. Athanasius taught that Christ, he knew the day of his return as the God-man, that is to say, Christ as man knew the day of judgment, but not by virtue of his humanity, but of his divinity. So again, the church fathers are very clear that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God the Son, the eternal word, he certainly knew his return, but there's some debate uh, as to whether in his humanity he knew. So in other words, his divinity could have chosen to blind his humanity on this. That's what some fathers think. Other fathers uh, believe that he did know it even in his humanity, but wasn't allowed to say it to the apostles. And this is actually an important debate because Matthew here says, but the Father alone, that is, the Father alone knows this date. And Mark chapter 13, verse 32 even adds, nor the Son. So it is a valid debate on this whole thing. You can just rewind two minutes if you want to hear it. But the, the fact is that God the Son certainly knew. And again, there's some debate in his humanity. Okay, verse 37, and as... In the days of Noah, or Noah, 
so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. St. John Chrysostom compares this to sporting as though no evil would ever befall them. Sporting as though no evil would befall them. Sounds like pretty much everybody today. Verse 39, And they knew not, that is their imminent destruction and the deluge, till the flood came and took them all away, so also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, this is what Father Lapide writes, and I didn't know this because in the last VLXs I said that the darkening of the sun would happen on the very last day, the general judgment, where Father Lapide here says that there might be a period between that darkening of the sun and the final coming of Jesus. Again, I didn't know this, so here's what Father Lapide says. I reply that after the darkening of the sun and the moon and the other warning signs, God will give a certain space of quietness and peace and then men will forget the signs and will give themselves up to pleasures, to gluttony and lust as before. Now, I don't know if you saw my, um, my videos on the eclipse of the church as well as the Eastern churches coming into union with Rome. Uh, but one of the things I talked about was this sixth age of the church, according to Venerable Holtzenhauser. And what Father Lapide here is saying does sound like that sixth age of the church, this, this period of quietness and peace. I know there were some comments in the YouTube asking about this illumination of conscience or the warning, and I agree with Father Isaac Maria Relea that it would be nice, but it's not definite. Uh, but even there, there does seem to be some pattern, even in Father Lapide, alluding to this, because he writes, So too a candle, when it is burnt out, will flicker up with a last effort before its flame, like a breath departs and is extinguished. Again, so great shall be the hardness and the wickedness of the multitude of the ungodly at that time, that even though they do not behold the sun and the moon darkened and other signs, yet they will long for the gluttony and luxury to which they have been accustomed. So this would be that seventh age of the church after a period of peace that, yeah, people calmed down for 25 years, but then they rose up uh, in their gluttony and lust as in the days of Noah. And then that would bring about the Antichrist and the final return of Christ. So we don't have all the answers on these mysterious words of Christ, but we, knew, we do know that many people will be caught off guard. Uh, which leads us to verse 40 and 41. Then two shall be in the field, one shall be taken and one be left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken and one shall be left. So again, this is about the end of the world, not a period of a thousand years of, say, an Israeli reign or however dispensationalism connects to the rapture, connects to Zionism. Because here's what the early Christians, the fathers, the apostles, here's how they saw it. Father Lapide writes, in the day of judgment, Christ will separate companion from companion, neighbor from neighbor. So now we are talking about the very last day on earth. This is the general judgment. This is talking about the last generation of humans who will be here when Jesus returns. And I did find out that, from reading St. Thomas Aquinas recently, that everyone who's on earth at the return of Jesus will briefly die. Those on the way to heaven will briefly die and then come back to life in heaven. And then those who are not in sanctifying grace, they will briefly die and then wake up to the second death, the perpetual death, the eternal death in hell. Father Lapide says, the one who has lived justly and piously, Christ will take up with himself to glory in heaven, but his companion who has lived wicked, wickedly, he will leave in his sins, that is, leave for hell, disapproved and condemned to everlasting punishment. St. Ambrose says, he who is taken is carried away to meet Christ in the air, but he who is left is condemned. And by left, he means condemned eternally. There's no 
left behind period for reform like those Kirk Cameron movies. Okay, verse 42, Watch ye therefore, because you know not what hour your Lord will come. This is an astonishing quote from St. Jerome. He says, That which shall happen to all in the day of judgment is fulfilled in each at the day of death. Let me say that again. That which shall happen to all in the day of judgment is fulfilled in each, that is in each person, at the day of death. So what this is saying is, you will see Jesus face to face in the next hundred years. Whether that's the general judgment or it's your particular judgment, you will see Jesus face to face as your judge sometime in the next hundred years. And in some sense, there's really no difference between that glory that you're going to see in the particular judgment if you die before he returns, or if he returns before you die, you will still see him face to face. So we really have to prepare for our particular judgment or the general judgment, that is, our death or the return of Christ. In some sense, it's going to be the same subjectively. Objectively, it's not the same, but subjectively, it's in some sense the same. And, you know, St. Alphonsus reminds us that a tree falls in the direction it leans. There's too many Catholics today that think they can just reform their life at the end. And this is where this line from St. Alphonsus is always so true and always so terrifying from him. A tree falls in the direction that it leans. So when a tree is cut down, it's going to fall in the direction it's leaning. So if, it, if a tree is leaning to the right and it's cut down, it's going to fall to the right. If a tree is alive, leaning to the left, it's going to fall to the left when it's cut down. So we can't expect uh, our whole trajectory of our lives to change. If you're living in sanctifying grace, then you will go to heaven. If you're not living in sanctifying grace, you better change things very quickly because you really can't bank on perfect contrition or some last-minute gift. Father Lapide adds, Everyone should say to himself at the beginning of each year, of each day, life is short, death is certain, the day of my death is uncertain. Listen again. Life is short, death is certain, the day of my death is uncertain. St. Anthony of the Desert was known to say to his disciples, When we awake out of sleep, let us be in doubt whether we shall see the evening. When we lay us down to rest, let us not be confident that we shall come to the light of another day. Thus we shall not offend, nor be carried away by vain desires. Neither shall we be angry, nor covet to lay up earthly treasures, but rather by the fear of departure from day to day, we shall trample upon all transitory things. Okay, verse 43. But this know ye, that if the good man or master of the house knew at what hour the thief would come, he would certainly watch and would not suffer his home to be broken open. Okay, who is the thief? Well, let's talk about the master. The master is you and me, guarding our homes. That's our our souls and our families. Who is the thief? So St. Hilary thought that was the devil, but he was wrong. Father Lapide uh, gently overturns that thought. He says, but it is better to apply the words to Christ. For so he himself explains, applying this parable of the thief to himself in the following verse, which is verse 44, reading, Wherefore be you also ready, because at what hour you know not the Son of Man will come. Okay, is it a little bit weird that Christ compares himself to a thief? Yes, but we're going to see Father Lapide's explanation. He says, To judgment, both the particular judgment of your own soul at the hour of death and the general judgment of all men at the end of the world, Christ therefore compares himself to a thief, not as regards the act of stealing, because think about it, your soul already belongs to Christ, but, says Father Lapide, as regards silence and secrecy, with which the thief chooses the hour when he thinks the householder will be absent or asleep. So your soul already, already belongs to Christ. The thief, uh, just a mixed analogy, that part doesn't work. Father Lapide is pointing out that Christ only compares himself to the thief coming for you as regards 
his silence, that you just don't know when he's coming. I seriously don't understand how leftists live these days, but I think of how many conservatives have weapons in their homes and security cameras on their doorsteps, which I'm all for. But how many conservatives out there have security cams on their doorsteps but are falling asleep not in sanctifying grace? Think of the vigilance that we would have if we really knew what it's going to be like when we see when we see Christ face to face. And then verse 45, Who thinkest thou is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath appointed over his family to give them meat in season? Again, that's the Dewey Rams Bible. And I think anyone out there who's married should realize this refers to their household. Your primary job is to get yourself and your family to heaven. Father Lapide especially applies this, however, to bishops today. I think of these dare we hope that all men be saved bishops. And I really believe that most bishops lie a lot, and I don't mean that lightly. Most bishops lie a lot because they honestly think everyone's saved. So if it's going to say face for your diocese yourself, you might as well lie if everybody's saved because you can't go to hell is what they think. They think they can't. And this is why this, this teaching, dare we hope that all men be saved, is so unbelievably destructive because it's denying the faithful the right they have to know how particular and um, demanding their judgment will be. How much more for these bishops? And this is why Father Lapide says, this saying of Christ, remember he wrote this in the 17th century, so this isn't just my wheelhouse of church reform. This is Father Lapide in the 17th century. This saying of Christ has special reference to bishops and pastors, for on them it is incumbent to feed the church, which is their family, indeed Christ's family, that they should distribute the food of sacred doctrine according to the capacity of everyone to receive it. The main reason Jesus died is to save us. Imagine these bishops saying, everyone's saved. That is essentially emptying the cross subjectively of its power. No one can objectively empty the cross of its power. But to say that everyone is saved, that's subjectively emptying the cross of its power, which is the very worst thing a bishop can teach his faithful. Verse 46, Blessed is that servant who when his Lord shall come, he shall find so doing. And then Father Labide says, that is assiduously and continually until death and the day of particular judgment. And so by consequence of the general judgment, namely that he, that is the bishop, should distribute at the suitable time to all the faithful of his church such food as is suitable for such doctrine and the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist, to nourish their souls in faith and piety. Now there's a lot of modernists who like that because there's a reference to the Eucharist, but they don't realize that the bread of life becomes the bread of death if you're not receiving Holy Communion in a state of grace. And this is where the doctrine is always tied to the sacraments, that people must be receiving Holy Communion in a state of grace for it to benefit them at all. Otherwise, as St. Paul writes in the Bible, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that that becomes their condemnation. Okay, and then verse 47, we have some really good news. I say to you, he shall place him over all his goods. So this is in reference to the father of a family who gets his whole family to heaven, or a bishop who gets many of those in his diocese to heaven. And this is a reference specifically to the beatific vision. You know, the beatific vision, what we will share with God is unspeakable. It's really unbelievable what God is going to share with us. I mean, if you read, I read almost all the writings of St. John of the Cross, and he, he goes so far as to say numerous times in there, we become God by participation. Now, you have to be really careful with that because it almost sounds Mormon. But St. John of the Cross, doctor of the church, says numerous times, we become God by participation. Everything that is his, he shares with us in heaven. Here's Father Lapide. Christ alludes to the servant, who because of his merit in faithfully and prudently ruling his master's household, deserves to be exalted by him 
and set over all his goods so as to enjoy them as an associate and companion and almost like an equal of his master. Such was Joseph of the Old Testament who was set by Pharaoh to preside over Egypt and actually was king of Egypt, if not in name. See Genesis 41, verse 40. So this line that he, that is Christ, God, he shall place him over all his goods. That's anybody who's saved. Father Lapidus says the goods of God are twofold, namely one, things external and created, such as heaven and earth and all creatures contained in them. That is, you're going to share that with God if you make it to heaven. And then two, things internal and uncreated, such as his infinite majesty, goodness, sweetness, wisdom, power, honor, and glory, and other attributes of his, both essential and personal, such as paternity, filiation, and spiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what he's saying here? You're going to not just see this in the beatific vision, you're going to be in it. For God is, as it were, an infinite ocean of all good things, and over them all he will appoint his faithful servant, his bishop and pastor. I think we could add a father or mother who gets their family to heaven. He will make him to rule, as it were, not only over all creatures, but also over all the immense and infinite goods which God contains in himself, that he may enjoy them with God and be blessed and glorified forever. Do you see that the saved will rule with God? Not just be next to him, the saved will rule with God. But not the person who is found unprepared either at his death, that is his particular judgment, or the person found unprepared at the general judgment when Christ returns. That person is referred to in verse 48. But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord is a long time coming, and Father Lapide again applies this to a bishop, he says, If a bishop shall think, The day of death and judgment is far away, Therefore, I will use and abuse my life and my office for the purposes of luxury and ambition. Well, he's not going to be ready for Christ. Verse 49, And shall begin to strike his fellow servants, and shall eat and drink with drunkards. And I thought this really applies to the situation between many bishops and priests these days. They're not beating them physically, but all these priests getting canceled, and then we see these letters from the bishops in very pious, kind language. Well, these are the bishops that are beating down their priests, ignoring their faithful, and doing it in a very smooth, very kind, very sweet, even very pious way. But the words, these warnings of Christ to these bishops are still just as pertinent as if they were getting drunk and beating people. Christ here intimates, says Father Lapide, that there are two capital vices of prelates from which all their other faults take their rise. They are imperious and tyrannical audacity, and seeking after pleasures, gluttony, and luxury. And nowadays, that is taking place in a much more quiet, pious way than maybe it was in the Middle Ages or post-Middle Ages, the Renaissance period when Father Lapide wrote this. But we're seeing the same vices. In fact, we're seeing them much worse. Verse 50, The Lord of that servant shall come in a day that he hopeth not, and in an hour that he knoweth not. Again, bishops who do not believe that hell is real, or at least that there's people there, that's exactly why they're going to misbehave and, and lie and go against the teachings of Christ on, on the salvation of souls, is precisely because they think they have nothing to lose. If you think everyone's saved, then you have nothing to lose in pursuing whatever you need to pursue on earth for your own benefit and your own advance. Verse 51, And he shall separate him and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. St. Jerome says, Christ shall separate, not by cutting him in two with a sword, but by severing him from the company of the saints. 
Father Lapide says, It means that not only shall Christ remove such a bishop from his office, but shall separate him from the company of the blessed and the angels of heaven and of God and deliver him to the devil to be tormented forever with the damned. Okay, and then let's just look at Father Lapide's summary of the last few VLXs, just a few sentences here. He says, Christ has shown that it is the duty of every believer to watch, that by good works he may prepare himself for the certain coming of the Lord to judgment, forasmuch as the time is uncertain, lest that day should come upon him unawares with the assured peril of damnation. This he showed first by the example of the deluge, which in the day of Noe, or Noah, drowned the world while it was unaware, verse 37. Secondly, by the parable of the householder who watches that he may repel the thief who comes by night at a time unexpected, verse 43. Third, by the parable of the servants, one faithful, the other unfaithful, the one of whom receives from his master an ample reward, the other severe chastisement, verse 45. Fourth, in the following chapter, this is where we get to chapter 25 of St. Matthew, verse 1, by the parable of the prudent virgins who took oil for their lamps. Fifth, in the same chapter, that is Matthew 25, 14, by the parable of the talents, which the master distributes to his servants and gloriously recompenses those who had traded diligently, but beats those who were idle and slothful. So, you know, they often say people talk about the most important thing right before they die, the most important things to them right before they die. What is the most important thing to Christ here? Your salvation. It's not in the bag. If it was in the bag, like von Balthasar says, dare we hope that all men be saved, Christ would not have his dying words be about how much is at stake and how much is really on your shoulders to respond to grace in all of these things. All of these final parables is how much is at stake so that Jesus' death be not in vain in your life, that the blood of Jesus may cover you, that you may cooperate with grace. That is my prayer for you. And you have to take this all very seriously because everything comes down to heaven and hell. Just think about it. When you are several trillion years in heaven, that's just the beginning of it. You can't even say beginning because it's eternity, but we have to speak in terms of time. The first trillion years in heaven will be the very beginning of it. The first trillion years in hell will be the very beginning of it. You have to get your parishes, your diocese, or most of you, your families to heaven. Thanks to all my benefactors, both spiritual and material. My income comes from you, and you keep this free for everyone who can't donate. I remember both groups, those who pray, those who donate, at all my masses. Please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis. Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.